Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience, special in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? I wanted to talk about a time that I participated in a very intense supervision group led by a seasoned psychoanalyst. And I have to say that the title of this podcast episode is very apropos because I really felt like, hey, is this therapy or is this supervision? Because I didn't sign up for this. So often, clinicians are not only in their own therapy hoping to work on their issues so it doesn't impede the treatment with their clients, but also in supervision to discuss cases and work on best practices and also to bring into awareness the client's projections onto the therapist, known as transference, as well as the therapist's projections onto the client known as counter-transference. Now, this supervision group was nothing like anything I had ever experienced. Sure, at my places of work, there was individual supervision to process cases, and at times, I even experienced group supervision. And it was always interesting to hear other people's works and learn from it, as well as get feedback from multiple peers and perspectives. Well, this group supervision, I paid for privately, and it was more like a therapy group than supervision. This had to be about 20 years ago, It was overwhelming, unpleasant at times, and very analytical. And if you ask me, overly analytical, which probably would surprise a lot of people who know me because they know I love to go deep. And I think I had mentioned on a previous episode that my students voted me more likely, most likely to psychoanalyze. But even Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, meaning not everything has to be deeply interpreted or there's some underlining meaning all the time. Well, the leader of this group did not subscribe to that belief. This group was made up of 11 clinicians, and each week I left feeling like I needed even more therapy. One, to decompress, and two, because it left me feeling really screwed up. My confidence and my self-esteem back then was truly lacking. So after I made a brief presentation, the group leader named Larry asked me about the client's physicality, what she looked like, and how she presented herself. I thought she was nicely put together well-dressed, even when casual, and someone in the group said, that's like you. Larry asked me if this observation was okay. Sure, I thought, well put together, okay, until the little voice crept up wondering if there should be something wrong with being okay with that. Why was he asking? This opened up the question for the group if they cared how they are perceived by others. Aren't we all to some degree? But then it came back to me as one clinician tried to interpret what being put together, symbolized. The interpretation of my togetherness was viewed as an attempt to keep things in a nice, neat package. I was starting to get uncomfortable. Really, what are we doing here? And what does this have to do with my case discussion? 
She's well put together, and so am I. Okay, great. Now what? But this started to feel reminiscent of my feelings in my own therapy, which are shared by many. You want to be ahead to know where things are going so there are no surprises, so you can control the narrative, and therefore you can control your feelings. It's a bit of a bind because we can't possibly predict everything, yet the risk of vulnerability is really scary. The idea of control is an illusion because without freedom of thought, letting things unfold, we are significantly limited to just being a neat package. This is a revelation, or maybe more of a confirmation of what I already knew. I like looking presentable, but I also like to control my vulnerability. Well, isn't that the thing about vulnerability? You can't control it all the time. And here I was feeling very vulnerable, very exposed. I wonder if I could handle a group like this today, now as a seasoned clinician. I'm sure it would still be difficult and painful, but not being the same person I was back then, who knows what issues I would be confronted with. The group moves forward to talk about the client I was presenting. We were talking about her vulnerability and how I could identify with it. Ellen, my client, didn't want to hurt or anger anyone. Focusing on the reaction of others was exhausting for her, but it was also an attempt to avoid retaliation for engendering those feelings in others. Now, the group was not aware of my own personal history, but one member of the group, Trish, was a peer at my psychoanalytic institute where I was training to become a psychoanalyst. And initially, we were friends. We had similar histories, which may have driven us apart, or maybe it was the way she was extremely sensitized to every reaction and response— I was aware, though, that when I spoke in the group, I was often directing my voice to her, as she had a very supportive affect. And of course, knowing that she struggled with similar issues as mine, I felt she got me. Other members of the group picked up on this, and seeing that Trish seemed to get me without having to explain myself, they too wanted to know me. Well, this is how group therapy often works. When you're in therapy, you have the reactions and response of a single person, the therapist, But when you're in group therapy, you have a group of peers telling you, unsolicited, how they perceive you. And this can be quite beautiful or quite jarring. So now I had an amazing experience. A group of people who actually did want to know me, to hear me, to value me. So slowly, I shifted my feeling about wanting to share myself. I'm a very private person which was initially rooted in insecurity, and I would feel like it took too much energy to explain myself. And then really the other voice in my head said, who really wants to know? Like my client Ellen, this is from a history of not having a voice, not being heard. And I just have to pause and reflect, tell all of you, that it's amazing that I chose teaching as a second career. Never in a million years did I desire to stand in front of a group of people expecting I had something of value to contribute. What's even more amazing, almost like an out-of-body experience, is that when I tell this to my students, they don't believe me, because the new me, the me that has grown tremendously, still takes pause to realize how I am perceived as someone with confidence, skill, knowledge, and value, a far cry from the gal that once was. Anyway, now the group raised question about Ellen's competitiveness. And not far from that was assessment of my own competitiveness. Did Ellen see herself as inferior to me? Do I consider myself competitive? Define competitive. Do I always need to win? Not always. Do I always compare myself to others? At the time, yes. 
Am I intelligent or as intelligent? Am I as attractive? Notice that it's never more. What would happen if I actually wondered, am I smarter? Am I prettier? Would I be more worthy of attention, but also guilty, feeling like I had done something wrong? Would the other person be angry, hurt, or worse, resentful? I was overwhelmed. Time to shut off. Time to shut down. Withdraw. Discussion over. But the group wouldn't allow it. They wanted to know me. We'll talk about competitiveness and vulnerability. A group member commented that there is always something going on between me and Larry. Right? Larry was the group facilitator. How do I feel when Larry picks at me? Meaning he didn't let me off the hook. He did seem overly focused on me. And he did have a provocative way of pursuing exploration. Sometimes I hated him for the sadness it invoked in me. And sometimes it was fun. The group was suggesting that I like it, that I want daddy's attention, but also fear it. If I get all of the attention, others will be resentful. There was even a member who asked Larry, why are you asking only Amy? She was jealous. And based on her background, I understood. She felt left out. She was one of seven siblings raised by alcoholic parents. And understanding that helped me to keep her annoyance or anger in perspective. It's her issues. However, it was still a struggle to handle her resentment, which I now accept as being directed at Larry, or Daddy, rather than me. I wondered about my way of relating to Larry. He commented often about my being silent and my communications that were unspoken. And he always encouraged verbalization of my communication. So if I got attention from Larry, from men, others would be resentful? Why did I give him so much power? He's an authority. Larry raised the issue of maintaining boundaries and how I thought there were strong boundaries between me and him. Ugh, my transference to males, to authority, to male authority. Here it was. And he related this back to my stance with Ellen, that I don't use myself enough in the room with her, he said, because I don't want to give anything away, right? The blank slate syndrome. I have since loosened up considerably, though if you listen to my other episode on Who Are You? Transference in the Classroom, you might hear otherwise from my students. But I'm reminded of an incident with Ellen. She is happy at the insight she gains and feels connected to me, expressing gratefulness for our work. I too was enjoying the relationship and proud of her progress. As she left the session, she commented, that was a good session. Thanks, Aim. I immediately stiffened. She had come too close. Why is she calling me AIM? Boundaries were crossed. Were they? Does the intimate expression of using a nickname for me threaten the professionalism of the relationship? Or did it just threaten me? Well, here comes Larry raising the issue of closeness. A group member asked if I had a sibling, and she was trying to deduce the root of my so-called issue. I answered, yeah, I have a brother, two years older. And Larry's answer was, perfect, he said proving to himself his assumption of the existence of aggression between siblings. For the first time, I reveal the depth of my conflictual relationship with my brother and the sibling closeness that was betrayed. Larry appears affected by his new understanding of why and how I fend off his poking, his push to connect with my emotional life. It's going to be on my terms when I'm ready, I thought. I'm cautious of being overwhelmed emotionally, not to mention on display in front of nine other people. And we come full circle of needing to maintain control. 
If you let your guard down, you risk vulnerability. You risk getting hurt. Got a couple of hundred thousand dollars for another 10 years of therapy? But thinking back on this experience reminds me that you have to live in the pain, work through the pain to move past it. Maybe Larry wasn't that bad after all. Continuing to risk taking risks, moving through the discomfort, and having the experience with people who offer interest, support, and acceptance ultimately will unleash a sense of freedom to stop dancing around landmines that might not even be there. Why did I tell the story on this podcast? I felt like there are so many layers to this. An understanding of parallels in the client-therapist relationship, demonstrating the work that clinicians continue to do on themselves, wanting to share the depth of therapy for the clinician as well as the client, and probably a million more reasons I'm not even clear on at this point. But I hope it's clear that therapy is much more than just asking, how do you feel about that, as the stereotype goes. And sometimes, if not often, the therapist is as vulnerable as the client. But importantly, I have come to enjoy reflecting on my earlier work. It not only underscores my professional and personal development, but I hope it can show others who may be interested in therapy that therapists don't necessarily have it all together. We're not perfect, we're human, and we have challenges too. Sometimes it's actually easier to help others than to help ourselves. And always we grow together. For those becoming therapists, it does get easier. You do get better, and you will never know it all. That's the initial fear, but then the not knowing it all actually becomes the excitement. There's no golden rules, folks. It's a case-by-case basis, hopefully coupled with knowledge of evidence-based practice and theoretical frameworks. No two situations are alike, no two clients are alike, and every day is a new adventure. Now, just a post note, as I was reflecting on this time in my life and this experience with group supervision, I Googled Larry. He died just a few months ago at the age of 93, continuing to poke, as he called it, to the end. There was something ominous about that coincidental timing of this podcast episode and the discovery of his death. But maybe the takeaway is that there are people who really do want to know you. He was in practice for 66 years. He never stopped being interested. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?